Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. That sound does not mean you're watching Buck Rogers, but it does mean we've jumped in the Houston Sports Talk time machine for Throwback Thursday. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to sit down with Houston radio legend Barry Warner. You haven't been listening to Houston radio over the last 43 years if you don't know Barry. What kind of guy is Barry and how well liked is he by his colleagues? None other than the Chronicle's John McClain said he wouldn't even have made it as a young reporter without Barry's help. Because back in the mid-70s, when the general was forced into covering hockey, when he just started at the Chronicle, uh, he said it was Barry to the rescue because he knew nothing about hockey. That's when Barry introduced him to players, coaches, executives, and members of the media. He gave the general tips on stories. He even gave him interviews he had on his tape recorder. In today's Throwback Thursday, Barry reminisces about his remarkable 64 years in the business. He describes his confrontation with an NFL owner, writing speeches for a presidential candidate, his friendship with Yao Ming, and getting dumped in an ice tub by an Oilers Hall of Famer. All true. Without further ado, let's get in the time machine to hear from one of the guys that made me fall in love with sports radio, the bald, the beautiful Barry Warner. I want to take you back to the beginning. I want to talk a little bit about your life and growing up in Buffalo, New York. Time out. I did not grow up. I have not grown I got older in (laughs) Buffalo, New York in the same body. But I haven't grown up because all that I do is talk to listeners about games that we all played when we were kids in our youth. And they're paid by incredibly talented, you know, kids who... Sometimes call themselves adults and most of the time don't act it off the court. But uh, nonetheless, they're performers and they're just playing games. Well, first of all, let's talk about you not growing up, but you were born and raised in New York and uh, in Buffalo. And at the time, the Bills didn't even exist when you were growing up. So what got you into sports with there's no Bills then you, you didn't have professional baseball in New York. Uh, as far as a major league team, you, you didn't have professional basketball as far as NBA. So what got you interested in sports? Two weeks ago, I've been interested in sports all my life, period. It started in Hartford, Connecticut, where I grew up. Uh, my dad would throw the ball to me, take me to high school games. There were no college, no pro teams. But when I was five years of age, we drove from Hartford to Boston and went to the Vatican of Baseball. Fenway Park. And I got to see in 1948, Ted Williams go yard off Rapid Robert Feller, Hall of Famer Bob Feller, and a 4-1 loss. When I walked in, the little hair that I had on my head looked like Don King. I got goosebumps. And, you know, you would listen to the Red Sox games every night, but I could smell the pot. I could smell the grass. I could, I could smell the popcorn, the dogs, the pretzels, and, you know, yeah, your scorecards, your lucky scorecards, 25 cents, you know, in, in Boston, you know, Boston East. And, wow, I, this is what I would hear in the background of the games, and I was seeing it live. What were the guys that you listened to that made you think, Maybe I can be a broadcaster. Maybe that's what I wanted to be because I, I think of the Red Sox in that time. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Is that Kurt Gowdy? Was no, it was before Kurt before Gowdy. Gowdy. Yeah, Tom Bixby, I believe. But what really, really got me 
was the shattered round the world. First week of October, Bobby Thompson off of Ralph Branca, game three between the hated rivals, the polo grounds where the New York Giants played, Ebbets Field where the Brooklyn Dodgers played, the first two teams to go west in a real estate grab. Russ Hodges on the call? No, it wasn't Russ Hodges on the call. It was Russ Hodges on radio with the shot heard around the world. Right. That was the first nationally televised baseball game. Ernie Harwell, the famed Detroit announcer, did the game on TV. And my father, who was a branch manager for the Fuller Brush Company, won a TV. <laughs> so we had like a seven-inch round black and white television. And when I saw the celebration, and if you'll remember, Robert, going back to the halcyon days of yore in the polo grounds, instead of having the clubhouse on either the right or the left field foul line and just, you know, you go down the steps into the dugout and your clubby, you were all good, it was 452 feet to dead center field. So it was about 480 feet until you walked up the stairs to the clubhouse. And I saw this conga line start with players and fans at home plate and whirl its way out to center field. And I said, if I can't be there as one of the players, then I want to be in the I just want to tell people, ask people, what was it like? What were you thinking going around the bases? What were you guys thinking sitting in the dugout when you heard the crack of the bat? What were you guys in the bullpen thinking when you saw the ball go over the fence? What does this mean? You know, how does this compare to your, your first child being? I mean, that is what I wanted to do. So the good Lord allowed me to do it. Well, one of the things that I, I find so fascinating about your story is as a young man, you work for a guy who would end up being a U.S. presidential candidate. You wrote speeches for an NFL player at the time, an AFL player, I should say, with the Buffalo Bills quarterback. Uh, tell that story. Well, Jack Kemp uh, c- came to us in Buffalo in 1962. He was placed on waivers by Sid Gilman, thinking he could sneak him through waivers because he had a broken pinky. Couldn't grab the football, couldn't throw the football on his right hand. And Kemp was an eclectic human being who taught me a very early lesson in life. He grabbed the newspaper at the training table out of my hands. And he said, quit reading the sports page. I go, what do you mean? He goes, do you know the best writers, you know, are not the sports writers. You can read the sports pages. And he opened up the editorial pages. He said, this is where you get out of the sandbox and where you go into the universe. Read the ed- which I still do. Each morning, I will get up and read the Chronicle editorial pages, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times to get different perspectives. And the ability to turn a phrase is still there by the editorial writers. And how you got into uh, one of your big breaks was just by accident, right? Uh, there was a, Somebody wasn't there for a hockey game, and all of a sudden you got to call a hockey game. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I started as a gopher for Bill Mazur, who went to the Fox Channel in New York. 
and was a you know a competitor of Howard Cosell, who I also worked for. But um, I started as a gopher for Mazer two weeks after my bar mitzvah, and he was supposed to call a hockey game three years after that. But there was a snowstorm on top of which there was a crash at train tracks. No cell phones in those days. He was about the eighth car in a long line of people. So he got to a pay phone. He called, and I was at, you know, I was there at the rink and said, Kid, it's on you. I'll get there when I can. So here I am, a high schooler, and I go up to the catwalk. And in those days, there wasn't a press box. You would literally climb up to the top where during a rock and roll concert, the lights were on and, you know, the whole nine yards. And you would crawl up to the catwalk where there was no restroom, no facility there. And you would have a seat that would be over the ice and you could see everything develop in a much slower fashion than sitting at press row. How did you get from Buffalo to Houston? Because that is a, an incredible story. I mean, you the serendipity of your life, you know, you talk about working uh, for Cosell and for Jack Kemp, and, and, and these guys are not just uh, sports figures, they're, they're historic figures, and then you end up in Houston. How? Well, 1960, the AFL starts. I'm a high school football player. But I got hooked up, thanks to Mazer, with the Bills, and I was a gopher at training camp. I would literally drive a minivan to the airport to pick up players that would come in for tryouts and also to take players back after they'd been cut, pick up players' families, whatever had to be done, wash the jocks and socks after practice. And on Sunday, after playing high school football on a Saturday, I would put on a coat and a tie and get to the stadium at 10 o'clock for a one o'clock game had a press pass and walked down to the field where I got to meet Sammy Baugh Frank Leahy the great Notre Dame coach who was general manager of the Los Angeles Chargers where I got to re-meet Sid Gilman who I had met before at a bar mitzvah several years earlier and he introduces me to two people he said kid I want you to meet this guy. You, uh, you've never seen him other than wearing a helmet, the number 60 on his back for my mentor, Coach Brown. He thinks that uh, this kid, Chuck Knoll, can be a pretty good football coach. So I got to meet Chuck Knoll, who was the linebacker coach, a friendship that lasted all the years that he coached and kept the Oilers out of the Super Bowl. And then he introduces me to a cocky guy with a slick back hairdo. He was 33 years of age. He just got USC thrown on probation for illegal recruiting. Guy by the name of Al Davis. What was Al Davis like when you first met him? Cocky, arrogant, visionary. Uh, One of the great Al Davis stories is that he snuck into the locker room after a game in Denver and posed as a reporter and interviewed Goose Gosselin, who uh, lived in retirement down in Port Arthur all of these years, and asked him technical questions. And 
Goose did not know that he was speaking to an assistant coach of another team, and he basically gave him playbook on what they do on certain coverages. So Al was just ruthless. So Al becomes the head coach of the Raiders. And I go through Scotty Sterling, who was the PR guy, and ended up being the general manager of the uh, New York Knicks and the Golden State Warriors. So I set up an interview with Scotty for 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the Camelot Inn, Blaisdell, New York, which is, you know, a a suburb of, of Buffalo, about 20 miles away from downtown Buffalo. So I call at 3 o'clock and say, Coach Davis, please. Well, he's not here right now. He's in a meeting. What do you think will be? We'll try him back in about 30 minutes. So I call back in 30 minutes. I get the same BS. Well, try him, try him in another 15 minutes. Who should I say is calling? And I said, look, my name is Barry Warner, and Coach Day was supposed to do an interview. I'm working my way through school, and I've got to get back to the station and edit this and put it on the air for an hour pregame show starting at 5 o'clock, and it's going to take me 25 minutes to drive down there. This is important. Well, I'll see what I can do. So I'm pissed. I am really, really upset, Robert. I go downstairs, and I give the guys in room service, five bucks, and I take a hat and a cart. I take my tape recorder, which was a Wallensack tape recorder, which was three times the size of your apple, weighed 36 pounds, had to plug it into the wall, and I put it underneath there, and I knock on the door. They say, who's there? I said, room service with a gift from the hotel management. And he opens up the door, and I push the cart right in. And I said, look, you son of a bitch. I didn't have a father that paid my way through Syracuse. (laughs) I'm working for a living. You sit your ass down, and you get ready to give me the best 15 minutes of your life. You got that, Al? Well, his wife, Caroli, was roaring with laughter. And Al, all of a sudden, didn't take He said, all right, kid, yeah, let's do it. I was just jacking with you. I said, you jacked with the wrong person, Davis, and I hope your ass gets beat tomorrow by the Bills. You got that? <laughs> so we sat down and we talked. This was in 1965. Well, Al never forgot that. And in 1966, when Pete Gogolak, who was a roommate of Marty Schottenheimer's, and I had a key to their apartment, and I used to crash and you know, bring chicks over there because I was still a young man and didn't have my own place and did the horizontal samba and all sorts of other things that went on at the time in the 60s. (laughs) Um, Pete Kokolak played out his option and signed with the New York Giants. Al was the commissioner of the AFC and declared war and said, we're going to sign all of those bastards from the AFL. Hires me to come down to Houston to become an undercover scout. Then you you come here, and this basically becomes your home for most of the Well, last... it does, but what happened is the job that I had, Robert, was going to be really cool. I was going to get paid to throw on a T-shirt and shorts, go to a college campus, just pull up in a Volkswagen rather than a company car, and just kind of chill and go to practice because we had an all-star game in Buffalo in June, the coaches' all-American football game, a precursor to Arch Ward's game in Chicago where the uh, NFL champion would play against the creme de creme of college rookies. 
So I knew who all the scouts were, who all the general managers were for the NFL teams. I would go to a campus and then would go out to the bar after study hall and say, hey, I saw some guy with the Rams there. What are they offering your tackle? Oh, they offered him, you know, three fifty, four, four and a half, and you know, hundred thousand dollar bonus and a car for both he and his wife. So my job was then to report to a kid who Davis had hired in Oakland by the name of Ron Wolf. Inducted it in the Hall of Fame two years ago in Canton, Ohio for the job he did putting together the world champion Green Bay Packers and making that trade for an alcoholic that couldn't cut it under Jerry the Jackass Glanville in Atlanta by the name of Brett Favre. Did you feel like you were in over your head at all doing no, this stuff? No, 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 because I was as cocky as Davis was. That's probably why he liked you. I yeah, I mean, because I had no fear. I mean, I'm sitting there. Oh, the other thing that I did in Buffalo, I was the red cap, which meant that I would introduce when the players were introduced over the PA and they ran out individually like they would do when you were a kid growing up and watching the Oilers instead of this big deal where everybody comes out and does a dance and there's theme music. It would be very stoic starting at left tackle for the Houston, the visiting Houston Oilers. He's 6'5", weighs 240 pounds from Colgate University. As soon as they said the name of the college, I would tap the player on the shoulders and they would say Al Jamison. When I tapped the guy on the shoulders, he ran under the goalpost. So here I am playing high school football as a junior in 1960, and the next day I'm touching the shoulder pad of George Blanda. I'm introducing touching the shoulder pad of Heisman Trophy winner Billy Cannon. So all of these players, and then I wore the red cap for the for the producer, which meant when they wanted a TV timeout, they'd say, kid, we need a timeout. I would take the red cap off, and the referee would put his outstretched arms, timeout. And when the uh, producer said, you know, we're ready to rock and roll, I put the hat back on. He'd wind his uh, right hand in the air, which means time to play ball again. So the first three years of the AFL, I was down there, rain, sleet, or snow in Buffalo, watching some great players up close and personal and feeling and seeing every hit. So you go from that and then you get back into radio eventually? Well, yeah, what happened is that the merger occurred. So my job was to call Ron Wolf and say, here's what they're offering. And Al was the first person we hear the term asset management. This is what this asset costs. This is, you know, what it is for um, cap management. Al was the first person to invent that in 1966. Al's legacy, pretty complicated, though, isn't it? Very much so. I mean, what do you make of him in the end? Because, you know, you hear all – he did all these good things for guys, and he went out of his way for some guys. But then you hear that he was just the opposite with other guys. Dan Pastorini, of course, has a whole other sure. story on Al Davis. What, what do you make of him, uh, good, bad, or is he the most complicated guy that you've covered or been around in sports? Uh, he was certainly the, the most complicated because Al was a genius. All you had to do was ask him. There were certain players that he just was a complete jackass to. Certain coaches, Mike Shanahan, 
And Shanahan, you know, left and Davis owed him $680,000. And he wouldn't pay him. So why should I pay you? You know, you fire Well, I had a contract. He goes, yeah. And I hired you to win games and you didn't do that. So, he went, so Mike just basically took out an ad in the, in, in the Oakland Tribune and said, look, I don't want the money. All I want is righteousness. So if Al Davis pays me the $682,000, I am going to donate it to the school system in Oakland, California for, for, for athletic equipment. Davis died without paying a dime. Yet he was the first person before there was any sort of a treatment plan for athletes to put his athletes in for cocaine and alcohol abuse way before it became fashionable. Very complicated, man. When did you get back into radio then? I got back into radio in 1968, where I just started doing some draft reports because I was doing weekend scouting for National League teams. And I would do some stuff on the telephone for a couple of local stations. And I would go on with the late and great uh, Bill Ennis on KPRC television and do a little, uh, you know, day one analysis. What does it mean for the Oilers about the players that the Oilers had taken? So I did that. And then I got back in the radio on a full-time basis in 1975 with a radio version of Ted Turner's CNN. They took a great station, KLYX, which was really a cool, hip radio station. They flipped the format to all news, all day, every day. This is your NBC, NIS, News and Information Service Station, 102.9 FM, serving Houston and, and NASA. The sports talk format. When- well, it wasn't a sports talk format. It was just news. Yeah, but when when did the sports talk format start for for you? When did you start doing that? 1977, when the station flipped to Magic 102 and became the first urban radio station because they made a hell of a lot more money doing that and their costs were lower. And I went to Kick Radio, which was located then in Pasadena. But they built a brand-new studio on Hillcroft and Golfton. And on the AM side, I did Sports Talk Radio. Started doing it every Monday after a Texan game. And then we started, and then we expanded it to every Friday as a preview. And uh, we did it and, and did that. Then I left to go to work for the Denver Broncos owner, the late and great Sidney Schlenker, as part of the Denver Nugget and Entertainment Company. I was assistant to the president. That was the early mid-'80s? That was the early-'80s. I lasted one year and found out that wearing a coat and a tie was good for undertakers, funeral directors, ministers, but not for Barry Warner. I mean, it just drove me crazy. We were dealing with political hacks because there was a partnership that Sidney had and struck up with the city of Denver for all these new improvements on McNichols Arena and the Nugget organization. So I had to become the liaison for those meetings. And I just realized, my God, what a waste of time. These guys are getting paid all this money to do nothing. Just 
literal suits. So I left there and I became a broadcaster and did talk show radio with Craig Morton, the former Dallas Cowboy and Denver Bronco quarterback. Let me get into sports because I know you know people are, are waiting for first talk a little about Houston sports and and, and again you're at a crazy right time because you're in the late seventies in Houston during love you blue. What was that like for you to be here at that time? And did you realize that this was just something that you might never see again, as you were watching this whole thing unfold? It became Woodstock without the drugs. It was a love fest. It was a true love fest, not just with the 40,000 fans that would go there, paint their faces, paint their bodies, Columbia blue. But it became a national phenomenon. I mean, wherever we went, there were Oiler fans that sprung up. People loved Bum. They loved this team. Before Earl, because they had Pastorini. Already, they had Elvin Bethay. They had guys that fought and fought hard. I mean, uh, they were 10-6 and six and beat the vaunted Washington Redskins two years after they won the Super Bowl. Went to the playoffs under Bum and his first, That was 1975. Then they added Billy White Shoes Johnson. Then, of course, the scales tipped when Earl Christian Campbell traded in jersey number 20 and the burnt orange for the Columbia Blue and the historic number 34. Where were you on the night, and this is one of my favorite things in, in Houston sports history, where were you on the night after they lose to the Steelers, they come back to Houston, the pep rally in the Astrodome, that first pep rally, were you there? No. I was frozen and getting one of the last rooms available at the historic William Penn Hotel in downtown Pittsburgh. Why? Because bottom line, Bud Adams have thrown both Bob West, the sports editor of the Port Arthur News, and myself off of the airplane. He accused me of being an undercover spy with Al Davis. And I said, well, really, what's your, your how do you come about, well, you're both Jews and you both can't be trusted. <laughs> uh, so so you, you missed the, the, yeah, we, we, the pep we, rally. We, weren't, we couldn't get a flight out. The right. airport was shut down. The, the only flight that departed was the Euler flight. So I didn't get home until uh, 9.15 the following Monday. Yeah, and he's talking about frozen because, of the, but for those who don't remember, uh, the, it was frozen solid in Pittsburgh for that game, raining, awful conditions. Uh, the, the Oilers get blown out. And it's still amazing to me to this day, Barry, that you have a team that didn't win the Super Bowl, didn't get to the Super Bowl, didn't win the AFC championship game, lost basically in the semifinal game, and they come back to Houston and there's 55,000 at least that we know of in the Astrodome that you can officially say, and then you had all these people lining the streets, and then they do the exact same thing the next year. This wasn't even a college town. This was bigger than a college town because I can't think of a college town that something like this would have occurred in. I mean, this was so unusual, and, and I always make the comparison, and I don't know how you feel, of the this team and this town was in love with each other unlike any other thing in, in, in sports period except for maybe the Brooklyn Dodgers of the 1940s and 50s. It was even bigger than when Rudy T. had back-to-back -back championships. And now I know they had 350,000 Houstonians partying that night. 
with the great thing, not one car turned over, not one fire, not one scene of looting like we have seen in so many other cities. But this was so spontaneous. Dickie Rosenfeld, who I worked for when I came back from Denver and did talk radio at uh, 610 with the Sports Mouth Show with Chris Pigala, came up with his brainchild with Jim Carolla, and they just threw it together. And I believe the, the total count was 80,000 people, including a kid by the name of Gary Kubiak. Who would be a ball boy for the Oilers uh, at some point? In, 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 in Kerrville, and, yeah, in 1975, he was a ball boy at their training camp. And it's great how a lot of the Houston sports gets interconnected. And, you know, I just met Alvin Bethay a couple of years ago, and he seems like a big teddy bear. But he wasn't super nice to you because the, the story goes, Barry, that he threw you in an ice tub yep. in, in the locker room, right? Yeah, he Hulk hogan me. What did you do, Barry? <laughs> I wrote something. I was writing for an underground publication called The Oiler Pipeline. The editor on it was a guy by the name of Herb Holland who was a sports writer and a police reporter for the Chronicle. So I wrote a column in 1978 after the Raiders won the first Super Bowl. Remember that where that great Vic that great picture that John Facenda and Willie Brown a free agent da 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 takes a Fran Talkington pass and goes down the field, you know, in the whole nine yards into to Boston Pops music, and it's one of the great things, and he can see his breath coming out of his nostrils. Well, I wrote in 1978, quote, with the exception of Earl Campbell, who had yet to play a football game, there is not one member of the Houston Oilers offense who could start for John Madden's Super Bowl winning team. Well, Elvin thought that I wrote that he wasn't good enough to start for the Raiders. And I walked in, and Elvin had, because of seniority, had a double Y in the roach-infested aluminum practice facility known as the Euler locker room. I walk in one day, and Elvin grabs me. So when Elvin grabs you, your feet keep moving, but you're not going anywhere. And he would jack with me all the time, and, and we go face-to-face. And the next thing I know, he said, I heard what you wrote about me, that I ain't good enough to start for the Raiders. Well, blank, 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 you no good Jew, blank, 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 blank. And the next thing I know, I am airborne. (laughs) Now, with Elvin, you don't know whether he's kidding or whether he's serious. And he's marching me around and all that. He's got a vice grip on me. And the next thing I know, he keeps screaming. And I'm running my tape recorder. And as Elvin deposits me in the whirlpool, in, in the ice tub with a couple of Oiler teammates there, I take the tape recorder and I threw it to Jerry Mines, who is the team trainer, and I go into the pool. I come out. Now, by this time, half the team is in the training room. And then Bum comes out. And I get out. Everybody's waiting for my reaction. And I said, Thanks, Elvin. I needed that. The air conditioning on my on my ride is broken. Jerry, can you give me a pair of shorts and a T-shirt so I can go back to the station? Went back to the station, and Mark Berman, the hardest working man in this city in media, edited all of the cuss words out. But beep, 
beep, beep, beep. We ran it every newscast for 24 hours. Yeah, this was the Mark Berman before his days at uh, Channel 26 and on television and all that sort of stuff. want to ask you about Houston sports in general and, and, and kind of big picture. What was the guy that was your favorite athlete to cover in, in, in your time in Houston sports? Unequivocally, there's not even there's, there's one name and one name only of, of the hundreds of athletes that I covered. Yao Ming. The single most fascinating individual that I ever had the pleasure of covering. Not the greatest athlete, but the single most fascinating person. I'm writing a chapter in my book, Son of an Ed, which should be published about the time that um, we land on Mars at the rate that I'm going. I can talk, but man, writing is so difficult, Robert. But I done a top 10 list already and Yao was number one and that's Yao. you're putting a lot over a lot of great guys like nolan ryan and earl campbell and akeem elijuan and you know now jj watt i mean there's just a, there's a really good list that uh, you can work up on that one and anthony joseph foyt yeah aj foyt as well and and the thing about Yao to me that always came across and and made him such a lovable figure for for a, a rockets fan was that Yao was such a, a genuine person and he seemed, you know, very humble in a, in a sport in the NBA where, you know, that is not something that's common, Barry. <laughs> well, what's so unique about Yao is we would spend hours talking about non-basketball things. He had a room that was his workout room, a state-of-the-art gym where he had machinery for every part of his body and specifically for his feet that were specially designed. And he had an Olympic-sized swimming pool where he could run in there and with a treadmill in there. When he was injured, which was quite often, unfortunately, during his short career with the Rockets, he would put a king-size bed in a room that had all these Hall of Fame pictures. Now, what Yao would do he did not want to go out and be ostentatious. So we had a man that I introduced him to, Andy Yao, his best friend still today. And Andy would go to charity affairs, or Andy would go to a store, a memorabilia place, and buy all these pictures of NBA greats. And they would be proudly displayed. And there had to be, Robert, conservatively, about $700,000 worth of pictures. I mean, from George Mikan to black and white photos of Wilt and Bill Russell and to Jerry West and Bob Cousy. And I mean, just a literal, literal collage and tribute to the greats of basketball. So I asked him one day, we're sitting by the pool. I said, my friend, if there was a fire that broke out, what would you run in to get? Out of all of this great collection, I mean, who would you? What would the, what were the the three or four pictures that you would have to take? And he goes, "Oh, that could all burn." I go, "What?" He goes, "Oh yeah, that those are just things that could always replace those." And I'm sitting there stunned. And he said, "What you did not see is upstairs in my office. I have two frames." specially made with pins 
from the Olympic Villages in 2000 and 2004. Those are priceless. He said, you had no idea. And he used to call me Quanto Loto, which means short, bald, old man. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Quanto Loto, those are priceless. I can never get those again. And he said, the only reason that I will play, if healthy, in the 2012 Olympics is to once again be in a village. Because if you will remember, in the games in Shanghai, we stayed at a six-star hotel. We did not have the experience in the Olympic Village. And he said, I missed that so much. Let me talk to you about another guy that, you know, is somebody that that Texans fans are waiting this year to find out if he's going to be the the guy of old, and that's J.J. Watt. I watched Lawrence Taylor. I watched Reggie White. For my money, watching J.J. Watt on a daily basis was, or on a weekly basis, was the best defensive player I've seen in the NFL. What do you think? Number two behind Reggie. Reggie was a better athlete and showed that he could dominate inside or outside. Wade coached both of them. And Wade, after practice, had a kick Reggie White out of practice. Because Reggie would come out and say, today I want to be a tight end. Today I want to be a linebacker. Today I want to be this. He would beat some of their receivers and running backs. That's how quick he was. And his strength was legendary. Well, Barry, let me remind everybody, Reality Check, weekdays at 10 a.m. on SB Nation's 1560 a.m., uh, still going at it after how many years again? Sixty. Six, no, this is my sixty-first year, my fifty-seventh NFL season. Where I am the longest-running member of the media covering f- football in our city. And you're just sticking around so you could hold something over John McClain's head. Oh, of course, he's just a pup. <laughs> Please. Thanks so much for doing this, Ben. Uh, it's my pleasure, Robert. Continued success, my friend. <laughs> You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.